Hi, and welcome to Found. I'm Daryl Etherington, and I'm here with my closest confidant and co-host... Jordan Crook, and I'm here to sell secrets. So just hit me up on uh, Apple Pay or Square or Venmo, whatever. Oh, any of any of those platforms. I'm glad you support so many different payment options for selling me out. Yeah, I mean, that's it's good. good to be agnostic, platform agnostic, is what I hear. That That's true. And Jordan's expressing entrepreneurial spirit which is what found is all about (laughs) we're thrilled to be able to talk to different founders every week about their experience of building a company everyone so far has been very different i mean obviously there's some things they share in common um when it comes to the experience but everybody goes about it a very different way and everybody comes into it in a very different way jordan what do you think about our conversation so far i've actually felt like there's been a bit of a mismatch almost like some of the founders with the less um sexy let's say products that are more like you know button-up tie are some of the like looser personalities and have a lot of fun with us and then there are people with these really kind of creative products that they're working on who have been a little bit more buttoned up on the podcast so it's interesting to see you know how people are reflected back in their products and and how they approach us I've, i've had a lot of fun On this week's show, we speak to Hannah Mohan, who is the founder and CEO, co-founder and CEO of Magic Bell, which is a YC company from this latest batch. That's the winter 2021 batch. And it's a startup focusing on, I don't know if you were alluding to this one specifically, Jared, but like one of these things that, you know, it's pretty behind the scenes. Like it's a developer focused tool. It's a notification platform uh, aimed at developers for use within corporations. So a very B2B product. But Hannah is a super interesting founder, and we had a really, really engaging, fun discussion with Hannah. Yeah, totally. And yes, I was alluding to this because you, uh, on the face of it, it doesn't sound very sexy. But point one is that money is sexy, and I feel like this is a product that will make lots of money. And two, yeah, Hannah was like just so chill and fun. Like it didn't didn't feel very B two B. And she had a lot of interesting things to say. She really opened up with us, got kind of vulnerable. She talked to us a lot about YC, which I thought was cool. You don't hear a lot about like the inner workings of YC all the time. So that was really fun. Yeah, for sure. And she has a super interesting path to entrepreneurship in terms of like all the various twists and turns that she's taken. Um, she's opened up to us about her experience as a trans founder too, which is, uh, you know, super eye opening and not something you come across a lot in this industry specifically. So we were really lucky that she was uh, willing to talk to us in detail about that. Yeah. And I thought that, you know, her openness about it was, I mean, obviously that's a very specific journey, but I do think that there are pieces of it that are applicable to, to other founders as well. Um, and so, you know, I felt like I learned a lot and, I hope that our listeners learn a lot, too. It's really fascinating. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So you are the founder of a company called Magic Bell, which is a very young company, but you're in uh, uh, Y Combinator. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And we have our demo day coming up. Pretty exciting time. Yeah, very exciting. Very exciting. Um, so can you tell us a bit about uh, Magic Bell and kind of like how that got started and and, and what the team is like right now? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Magic Bell is a notification system for web and mobile products. We focus a lot on the in-app experience and using Magic Bell, you can get something like a Facebook notification center in your app in within an hour. 
we started about six or seven months back in September. Uh, been in YC since January. It's my co-founder and I. We've had a few people help us out on the way, but um, it's just the two of us now, and we are going to start recruiting a team. So it's still pretty small. So very small. But what have you? You've already built a. Uh, I've you know I've seen the demo video that you uh, uh, released uh, for the for the YC. Uh, pitches there so like you've built something that's functional like it, it provides the functionality i think you have customers already is that right yeah we have a few customers in fact uh, we just signed up a couple of weeks back pitch which is a really cool startup and it's really exciting yeah we both both of us co-founders are engineers so we can uh, build things together and we have a lot of experience so yeah i mean we have a long way to go but it's already a product providing a lot of value sort of like truly an mvp but a very polished MVP, I would say. Do you feel like being in like a double engineering team when you go, how does that affect like going into sales? Cause like right now it's just the two of you, right? What What's that like pitching to clients and like kind of splitting your time between those two things? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I've been an entrepreneur for 15 years now. And in my last company, I built a B2B SaaS, not an enterprise SaaS, but a B2B SaaS company. And um, so I have a lot of experience doing demos and, you know, just helping customers on board. So I think I'm not super like uh, target driven or quota driven, but if we have inbound leads, which we do already in Magic Bell, I'm pretty good at nurturing them and converting them. So I actually enjoy that part. I'm just, it's, it's actually sometimes a little bit challenging because I enjoy both these aspects of the business quite a lot, writing the code and it feels like it would give you like an edge almost in sales, like depending on who you're talking to necessarily to be able to say like, oh no, like the, I, you know, the, I have the technical chops and I can actually explain to you like how easy this is as opposed to some, like a non-technical founder who's like, it's good notifications, right? Like you want those, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, also this, you know, in general, I think sales is moving more to solution selling to sort of understanding how your Customers are going to use your software. It's not just about selling it to them, but, you know, helping them actually be successful with it. And so I think I can bring that perspective in because we know, uh, you know, what are the challenges in implementing, getting buy-ins from everybody in your team. So I think it helps. Um, sometimes probably being a little bit more sort of from the sales background gives you an idea of these processes or how to qualify leads and something that probably I don't do as well, but that's what I'm hoping to improve as a founder. Yeah, but I've had experience with, uh, um, you know, SaaS platform sellers. And, and often I've found, like, interacting with the founder is a very convincing, at least for me, when I was on the buying side, I was like, this is what I want. Like, this this convinces me that I want this product more than anything else. And, like, th- but I, I, on the flip side, I also wasn't the, I wasn't, like, a typical buyer. But maybe this is what you're talking about, right? Like, I was the person that would actually be using the product. And then when it came to, like, Okay, there's there's a contract negotiation. I would be like, "All right, there's some here's somebody else. He does that stuff. <laughs> I'm over here." But but like, you know, is that what you mean when you're when you're talking about like most of the time the people that you're selling to are not really the the uh, the typical kind of like enterprise buyer anymore? Yeah, that's what I mean exactly. Like, so there isn't this sort of enterprise sales where you are working with like a, you know, what do they call it? Procurement team. And then that's, the, and then you go through another team that sort of like actually like deploys it and another team that uses it. We're sort of selling to these uh, high growing, high growth startups. 
and it's like 50 to 100 people uh, people can make decisions fast and and that's a very different environment you get like high quality feedback pretty often uh, they're very focused on speed of purchasing something and getting it out the door so yeah that kind of sales i enjoy i think i'll probably enjoy the more enterprise sales as well but I think it's good to have like a mentor that can keep guiding and keep telling you it's okay. It's okay right. for these things to take time. Yeah. 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 So, so actually who's that been for you? Like who, who has helped you kind of like get to this point uh, through mentorship and that kind of stuff? So I think like YC has excellent resources. You can ask the community. I also got some coaching from uh, Paul, uh, Paul Gassi. He is a coach, sales coach in the Bay area. Uh, I, plan to do more of that with him. And I uh, I think like one thing he told me like always stays with me. He said, uh, salespeople are always internally aggressive, but externally very calm and you never want to. And I think like that was sort of what I was missing uh, in sort of like making the switch to being uh, more of a salesperson. So I've benefited from that a lot. I'm still not very good at it and I've certainly not scaled it well, but I mean, that's... Um, I think like, I remember he asked me like, what would be your sort of like this level you want to achieve? And I told him it would be like when someone comes in and they sort of don't even want it, but I convince them. Like somehow I have this image of salespeople as sort of convincing you of that or like making you realize you need this. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think you're in the much better position, which is that, you know, people actually have a genuine need for the product and even if you are ineptly selling it to them they're they're realizing like no i want this thing right <laughs> yeah <So>. yeah <laughs> it works out really well when you have a good product wait can we i want to ask about yc hannah i i i think that like it's an interesting thing because obviously it's the the top accelerator and has the most funding and the most successful companies and there's a really interesting network effect right where you can sell to your peers and sell to alumna can you peel back the curtain a little bit? I, I'm curious, like, what is it like prepping for a demo day at YC? Like, what is there like a big process and curriculum involved? Or is YC just like, good luck, everyone. Demo day soon, you know, like. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I've also written about my YC experience on our blog. So if you also want to someday go read that, just search for Y Combinator Remote Edition Experience or something like that. We'll, we'll put a link in for listeners okay. so that they don't awesome. even have to search. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like see if we rank on Google or not. Yeah. And uh, the for me, the surprising thing was that YC is actually um, the first two months of YC, they almost don't talk about funding at all or raising money at all. In fact, they discourage you from thinking about it or spending your time with it. Um, and um, and then the last month is a lot about the demo day and the prep for the demo day and getting your sort of, you know, uh, your slides right. But um, so they do guide you a lot uh, through the program. Of course, they help you sort of refine how you pitch it to your customers and to your investors. They sort of help you understand the difference between the two, like how a customer pitch is different from an investor pitch. So you sort of work on that through the program. But then it's only in the last month that you kind of put together your fundraising plan, your um, your uh, slide. And it's only really one slide now in the demo day. So they've kind of like distilled it down to these essentials. And, and if you just kind of get those right, you're in a pretty good spot. Of course, there's a lot of pressure uh, depending on, you know, your stage in the company and your experience before. And they try to kind of help you through that as well. 
I I would say like one thing that was interesting for me in YC was to understand very early on, uh, and they try to say that many times is YC is not a school, so you don't really have a they have guidance for you, but you are supposed to be proactive and ask for what you need. So they'll suggest at different stages this is probably what you should do, but you are supposed to book office hours. You're supposed to reach out if you get stuck or get blocked. But they don't really, uh, you know, like reach out and say, why aren't you doing this? You should be achieving. It's really they they want you to work independently, pretty much. Hmm. That makes sense. Like it's it's not um, it's not a school. It's a self serve resource, right? And and that will set you up well for the future because the future that's how you get everything done anyway, right? Exactly. And I think like for me, at least it was true. I had kind of taken a break from startups for a few years uh, for some personal stuff we can talk about later. But uh, so for me, I actually kind of picked back up the sort of discipline of working each day and, you know, uh, taking the pressure of delivering something during YC. So for me, it was very much like a finishing sort of school of before you go out into the world and go, you know, like kind of like from the seeds. So I almost looked at and I still look at Demo Day as sort of the starting of, not as an end, but more as like kind of getting to the starting line of actually building a, like a, a real business, a real company, right. not just a product. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so you mentioned kind of like your, your, your previous founder experience and your previous company, which I know you scaled to, to successful um, recurring revenue numbers. But like, can we talk a bit kind of like how you even got into the startup world to begin with? Like, when did you realize, oh, what I want to do is found companies and what did that kind of look like for you? Um, sure. So I grew up in India and I went to these, uh, like the Indian Institute of Technology. I think they're kind of well-known in the US. Basically, a lot of engineers graduate from there. It's, uh, I remember, so we have like a whole bunch of them and, you know, in different cities. We used to have like seven, now there's more. And I used to be in one called IIT Guwahati, and which is sort of in the northeast of India. So it's a little bit remote, pretty cool. Like it was the newest one at that point. And I remember going for sort of like a summer internship to the one in IIT Bombay, which is Mumbai now. And uh, I remember I was like in this lab where a lot of people were just doing the graduate or postgrad uh, experiments or work. But then there were like these few people who were building like a telephonic company. Just two, just two guys uh, just graduated building a telephony company. And I found that pretty fascinating. I had no idea that you could do that, essentially, at that point. Right? Like, I just, yeah. It's it's hard if you don't have, like, constant and present examples, right? Like, I'm, I'm not from the Bay Area. I feel like if you grow up in the Valley, it's kind of like, well, why wouldn't you, right? Like, everybody around you is doing stuff all the time and, like, building new companies, right? Like, uh, I'm in... Toronto, which now has a very thriving startup ecosystem, but uh, previously did not. And you would just kind of like, well, I think people go to work for Bell or like big telecom, whatever. Like there was a much more conservative approach to kind of like what you do with your education. And um, yeah, you, you don't, it's really hard to kind of realize like this is something people do and people can do very well if they have the skills to do it, unless you are presented with an example, right? Which, which luckily then you, you stumbled into or found, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you do not see it, it's hard to sort of imagine it. And uh, and then it's hard to desire it and then obviously very hard to get it. <laughs> right. Um, so I remember seeing that I didn't still understand like the financial side of it or how the whole thing works. 
but i kind of i think that gave me the desire and then i graduated moved to bangalore which is sort of this considered the silicon valley of india a lot of software companies uh, i worked for a couple of years i was probably what was what is considered uh, i mean i was told i'm like a high maintenance employee so oh. <laughs> like <laughs> wait i want to hear about that <laughs> let's tell that story who said mm. that to you that's terrible i think like the, like good people like they were running the startup and uh, i think like it was more of a services business where you were sort of doing projects for other people and um uh, they sort of recruited me wanting to build because i had done a lot of sort of in undergrad i had done a lot of uh wireless communication work that's why i had gone to iit mumbai as well to work with a professor on i had actually when i graduated i had four ieee papers which is pretty rare for i had terrible grades but like <laughs> tons of obligation for an undergrad but that didn't impress the universities in the us apparently that much but so they hired me for that work but that's a you know it's a pretty massive undertaking you really can't do it on a shoestring budget so they very quickly realized that and then they just wanted me to do their regular projects and i was pretty disillusioned um yeah was it like consulting type work then Is yeah it was consulting you're... kind of work yeah so yeah. you know i think like back then the rage was doing the the best hardware work was probably like writing mp3 decoders for that will like go on to become car stereo systems or something oh yeah wow <laughs> like hardware hadn't had the resurgence it had with arduino yet it was like a few years away from it sadly um so i think like yeah they were just uh, and i remember at one point telling them I, i'm considering leaving and they were like oh that was, i mean they were just kind of relieved <laughs> like you like That's you you, you know one of those yeah one of those conversations you're dreading having because you think oh my god they're going to be like kind of upset and then you almost see them relieved and you're like oh yeah, they're like oh thank goodness you said something yeah <laughs> so um so i think like i quit that and then i uh, i joined another company kind of something very similar happened they were doing a very exciting project i actually learned a lot from them but they sort of ran out of funding so they had to make a lot of changes and so i was almost like this kind of entrepreneur born out of boredom i would say like i was just like bored at my work so i would start like hacking on my own in the evenings and i tried building web apps before like a uh, kind of like clones i know clones get a terrible reputation but i remember like i used to shop from india on that website called deals to buy to buy laptops and have like my friends bring them back to me because you couldn't buy those laptops in india and so i was like wow let's do this here and this was pre e-commerce boom never went anywhere of course but i learned a lot and so uh i i used to play a little bit of music at that time and i also had a camera i used to love uh, uploading my pictures on flickr and just how much it inspired me uh, so i kind of felt it would be great to have something like that for music so uh with my business partner we started building um something called musibu which was a music community for musicians and and it was just pretty cool because there was nothing like that in india india people love music creating music and um, and then just the third or fourth day we already started seeing people upload things that we didn't know them and they were uploading already and that was like a massive boost so that's kind of how i got started i would say you know just more sort of accidentally never to build this like you know this is the market and this is the opportunity and just yeah the first one was very very accidental that way yeah that's super interesting though cuz it's like i think i think that's probably more common than 
You'd think, right? People are just uh, uh, finding themselves dissatisfied at their current job, finding that their limits aren't being tested, right? Like that. There's that's a great reason to do a startup because you basically have to build everything from scratch. And if you're like, well, I'm really tired of doing this one thing. Guess what? There's a whole list of other things that you have to do too, right? So you can kind of like make sure that you're constantly engaged and and interested in challenge, right? But it's also when you when you say you know the first users on your music platform, like I'll bet there's like a dopamine hit there. And then you're like, oh, I want to chase this forever, right? Like when you get user engagement and get user satisfaction, that must be very rewarding. I don't know if you found that, but I would imagine it would be that. Absolutely. I mean, so I was a terrible web programmer at that point. I'd never like built anything web. And I remember the whole, even this, you know, the term probably is obsolete now, but the whole Ajax thing where, you know, pages didn't reload was so new. I remember building a commenting system, but it wasn't Ajax. So it would just reload the page when people commented and the music would stop and it it upset everybody. I sort of copied, <laughs> I sort of copied some code from the internet which had the wrong DB column. So it would truncate the text to 255 characters and people would break it into 255 and comment. And so I was just amazed that it was so terrible, but people still wanted to use it. Right. And that's great. Yeah. That's another side. Like you were talking about with the sales, right? It's like there was friction and yet people were still so engaged in the product. You're like, you can be guaranteed that there's demand there. Right. I think like that's what they call the sort of that moment, like instead of pushing, if you see this pull, that's where you should go with your product. It's interesting though. We were talking about like passion, right? Like you started out of boredom and like music, I can understand, right? Like that, you know, oh, I want to chase this and like deliver this experience for users. But like, notifications annoy people like how does that become a passion <laughs> like you know what i mean i would even go a step back further and you, your other one was SaaS too right like SaaS in general but then also the specific problem of notifications like i i guess we're only halfway through your journey so i would love to hear like how it, it you got to that right so i think i'll just take yeah, a minute to wrap up the music one so music is great as a consumer it's a terrible business to be in unless you're at a certain scale so I think like more power to Spotify. I love using Spotify for 10 bucks a month, but I don't want to be in the music business anymore. Very litigation prone, very... So we sort of like knew we had to move on from that, but we had a lot of skill and uh, we couldn't raise any money. We didn't know how the whole thing worked. I actually remember at one point uh, when this whole lean startup happened and Eric Ries, uh, you know, like his book came out. And for I have no idea why, he agreed to do a phone call with me, just this random entrepreneur from India that like I just said, hey, would you talk to me? And he said, yeah, sure. And yeah, and I got on the phone with him and um, and this is literally the question I asked him. It's amazing, like how much these people will tolerate, like how many stupid questions. Uh, I actually asked him, I said, I do not understand this. Like, what will I do if somebody gives me a million dollars? <laughs> like seriously right like to me it looked like if somebody actually funded invested a million dollar into you then why do you even have to work anymore right right, right, right. right? yeah and uh, so i was kind of there so i didn't understand i just wanted to make a business that could support our lifestyles because we were having fun so we just wanted to keep doing it so that's when we moved to SaaS because we knew that at, like one of the big problems with the music business was it just wasn't predictable one month would be nice but then you start again from scratch the next month so that's kind of why we made the move to SaaS and did a customer support um, sort of, because again, like a natural thing, we wanted it for our business, something very easy to use. So we said, let's, let, let's build it. Let's take a harder problem this time. 
Yeah, and you wanted those smooth, dependable SaaS revenue curves. Absolutely, too, right? yeah, 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 absolutely. We, I mean, I think that was also the time, if you remember, in 2010, that sort of this 37 signal, Space Scam, Shopify, because, you know, I was using Ruby on Rails, so they were, they were my heroes. Oh, right, yeah, DHH and Toby yeah. are all Ruby all the time. Yeah, All yeah. Ruby, all yeah, sort totally. of like... I also know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about Ajax. Exactly. Ajax. Let's talk about I'm Ajax the least now. technical person. In this in this, this trio whole... or this duo here, I'm the technical partner, which is not saying very much given my own technical experience. But I'm really here for personality. Let's do <laughs> I know that time. So that was a heady time and it was and it and it seemed like, yeah, this is the way to go. So then so then you built your first business, and, and how did that go for you? Um, so that went pretty well, I would say. Like it took a little bit longer, and uh, but you know, SaaS has this sort of like flywheel kind of thing where you start building revenue, and especially customer support. You know, you have lower churn. It's a pretty like solid business to be, and we were one of the first waves to um, do this kind of shared inbox. So it's not really as much of a help desk as much. It's this kind of shared inbox. And, um, you know, people loved it. I was pretty focused on the experience of it. So very much like I was very inspired by Gmail. And I was I said, if I could just have Gmail, but sort of multi-user, then that would be perfect. So that's kind of what we built. Um, I think at that time, what I did not understand was just how expensive it is to scale companies up. Sort of how, uh, and, and people do it. I think bootstrapping, uh, I think like, some people have very good business sense, so they know where to invest, how to prioritize features. Uh, I took a lot, lot, little bit longer to sort of get to this profitability, but did pretty well. I've written about it. I've done an Indie Hackers AMA about how it, like I left the business last year when it was doing a little over half a million a year in revenue. And oh, that's great. with yeah. just like a very small team of three or four people. So oh, it wow. worked out pretty wow. well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. But that was entirely bootstrap. Yeah, entirely bootstrapped. We we did like Startup Chile, which gave us a grant. Um, and then Microsoft Accelerator incubated us for a little bit. But we never raised any venture, never any equity funding. If you're listening to Found, you're probably already super interested in startups and the overall startup ecosystem. So we've got a great deal for you. We're going to offer you 50% off either a one-year or a two-year subscription to Extra Crunch. Extra Crunch is TechCrunch's premium product offering. And when you go there, you'll get deep dive interviews with some of the top founders in the industry. You'll get market maps on specific verticals and some of the most exciting areas of growth in startup land. You'll also get uh, surveys of some of the top VCs in different areas, including different geographies. So you can subscribe to Extra Crunch at extracrunch.com. That's probably the easiest way. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, follow the links for Extra Crunch and you'll get a prompt to subscribe and then just enter that code that's found, the name of this podcast, during checkout and you'll get 50% off on either a one-year or a two-year subscription. You mentioned the uh, Startup Chile and also the Microsoft Accelerator and you've been in YC so I'm just curious, like, is can you provide a kind of rough comparison of all these experiences? Like, is there something common to them all or are they very different in their approaches or how do you find that overall? Yeah, sure. So I think like I just want to say that I did Startup Chile in 2011. That was actually the very, like, that wasn't the pilot batch, but that was the very first official batch. Like, 
it was not the zero, but it was the number one patch. Yeah, so it's been some time. I'm sure it's evolved a lot. Um, and I did start, uh, sorry, Microsoft Accelerator in 2013. So pretty, pretty early as well. So I don't even know if the program exists anymore in that form. Um, I would say at least the current Y Combinator experience is pretty software driven. So in terms of like how you book time with people, how you, and you know, and the alumni network is pretty strong. Uh, and I think like they just happen to also be in the Bay Area. So they have access to a lot more sort of attention. And uh, obviously it's harder to get in. So you also have like startups that are sort of doing better. Um, I know from my startup, Chilibat, there were actually some pretty successful businesses in LATAM and elsewhere. So I think overall, probably percentage-wise, it was pretty similar. The YC experience is very much uh, the sort of... Uh, when I got into YC, I was surprised by just how reading through their user manual, which uh, is like kind of the internal knowledge base, even before the program started, I already knew that these three months are probably the highest leverage three months in my life and I should not waste my time on... Like I should get to know my batchmates and I should... Uh, at least people in my section. But I should understand very well that this time will... Sort of this high leverage time will never come back in my startup. And I think that sense I never could derive from any other program. Like this, the the way YC is able to express that to you. Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, because I mean, you would want to make the most of it. It would be a shame to look back on it and be like, oh, wait, I didn't realize what I had, right? But uh, I, yeah, I get the sense, you know, just from from talking to people about it, that it, it can be like, especially if you're not originally from the Bay Area, it can be like, a decade of networking shrunk into a quarter of, of time, right? Like it's 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 insane how hard how packed it is, and then it's insane what those network effects do later on for just like, oh, I know this person because they were an advisor at one time or whatever, and now I can tap them and like that's stuff that, uh, you know, for me and for Jordan probably it's taken us a decade of writing about technology in the startup scene to build those same kinds of relationships and be able to tap people for things like that. And, and you're doing it in, in a short amount of time, if you're doing it effectively and if you're not wasting the opportunity, right? Yeah, I think uh, probably it's also different when you are in person in the Bay Area. It's uh, like our batch is obviously entirely remote. But at the same time, I think this sort of like willingness for somebody to reply to your email because you're a YC company is much higher than if you were to cold email them otherwise. Or for you to find somebody in the network who could introduce you. I'm a, I'm constantly amazed that you can pretty much reach anybody through that network, <laughs> and that's like mind blowing. Yeah, it is. I know. Well, I mean, we got we got introduced because of YC, right? <laughs> so it's like that's why you're here today too. So it's it's definitely it makes a huge difference. Um, but then, so let's get to to how you came to Magic Bell and how you moved, uh, you know, away from your previous startup and into this, and what the process was there for you. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, like I said, I did support me for about ten years, um, and around 2015, uh, actually around 2016, I sort of realized that I'm transgender and I decided to transition to start transitioning. And so I took like the next three years. I, I still kept working on my business, uh, but then I was basically giving 70% of my attention to my transition. I think I am inherently pretty ambitious, to be honest. Uh, and then like, I think like startups or these things, they have sort of their moment. So th like something can be a good business, but have 
kind of miss that moment of its like wave, right? And so I think like I felt like that with Support B. I felt it's a great business and it's a great business, especially in the hands of somebody who appreciates the work-life balance it brings and the sort of, you know, the customer loyalty it brings. But I kind of like how I like to joke with some people. It's like I have a gaping void in my life and the work-life balance isn't really for me. So I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to do something like a little bit more ambitious. Also, I think I got a very first-hand sense of how expensive it is to build companies. Like, let's say if you make, even if you bootstrap and you make like $3 million in uh, seven years or something, which is actually a fairly good outcome for a bootstrap company, you'd find you probably spend about 2.5 of that getting there. Uh, so I figured it's much better to invest that early on than to sort of spread it out over time. So I was pretty clear I wanted to do another business something for developers because that's a crowd I really enjoy being with uh, and definitely raise money this time. Stay cash, uh, sort of like focus on being efficient, efficient. with your cash. Yeah, yeah. thanks. And uh, But definitely raise some money. So Magical was sort of this obvious problem that I've always felt like support bees probably 40% of the code was just notifications, email notifications, in-app, having people reply to email notifications, debugging them because like, you know, we were sending millions of emails and then one or two emails would not reach someone and we'd have to like go finding it. So you sort of realize it's the way people look at notifications as fire and forget is not actually true. They end up having a shelf life. Like even in your email inbox, half of your emails are actually notifications. And yeah, right? you probably <laughs> snooze them or whatever. So I, I could see that it's a pretty serious, uh, like, it, you know, like Jordan also said, like notifications have come to be sort of this annoyance more because I think the tools are missing. So I felt it would be great to sort of build a tool for the tool makers that also has this kind of end user effect. And that's where, uh, that's why I decided to work on Magic Bell in 2020, like last year, once I was finally done with my transition, especially the legal part kind of took a while, kind of kept dragging on. When I was done, I was like, okay, I'm ready. I, I took the summer off, enjoyed running around in Europe. And then I uh, kind of like, was a good moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was like, was it difficult for you then to change modes after you've done this or were you kind of looking forward to it? Because you, you had spent so much time on your transition and obviously that's got to be a very emotionally taxing process, right? Probably very rewarding as well, but I imagine also stressful. But then um, you were just immediately like, no, I got to get back to it. I got to build another business because you mentioned you have that ambition or was there a period of like, I need to, well, you had your decompress moment, I guess, right? But did your brain have to switch modes and then you're like back into business building or how was that for you? Uh, so I think like one thing that happens and uh, at least happened with me was, um, you know, you when you're transitioning, like apart from the physical transition or something, like we all invest in this personality and then you sort of have to build a new one again. So you take bits of it, the core of it, but then a lot of the way you present yourself and the things that bother you or affect you or whatever, so it took me a little bit of time to sort of understand was the ambition real or was it simply an artifact of not having. And for a while I thought that, okay, maybe the ambition was just more because I didn't know what, I, like I just kind of had this angst from my transition and hence. But then it, I think slowly I came to the realization it's not really true. Uh, and so there was that. Also, I think like I kind of lost my confidence a bit on the way in terms of like being able to work hard, focus on a problem because I would get easily distracted. I got in sort of like, you know, through the transition, gotten more anxious. And uh, so I actually, before I got into YC, uh, I did the startup school 
which is sort of their online program where and they did this first build sprint in September last year or something where it was like 30 days you build something and I basically that's the time I separated from support B and I figured okay let me just do this and it was really hard to be honest I like I, I wasn't sure if I could even do that so I had to slowly pick back up then also I realized that I was trying to get back to being this person that I had been sort of like saying that's where I need to be and then I realized no I can actually be a new person I don't have to work that way I, I don't have to be that person I want to and there are some things about it I liked, like the intensity I brought to work, or, but I don't have to work those hours. I don't have to be, uh, I can take care of my health better this time. So there was definitely a finding back of sort of groove that I think is still going on. Uh, but definitely the first few months was a lot of that searching. Hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting that you you say you had the, like the personality thing, I, you don't, think of that that, you, that you're like oh wait how much of this is tied up with my gender identity or how I feel about myself and and who, who I thought I was before and how much of it is just actually genuinely core to my person or something that's actually valuable and important to me right? yeah sorry no it's true actually I mean we don't I think that's probably one of the silver linings of transitioning it it makes you think about that I mean, I think I was going to ask, like, you, you'd you built this, like, network, right, within, like, the startup community for, for so long. Can you tell us a little bit about, like, the the reception from that network as you went through that transition and go, you know, you start a new company? Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear what that was like. So I think I lost a few friends. I mean, not too many. Some of them just didn't know how to deal with this. They, like, and I totally get it. Like, you know, it's not that they're openly hostile. They just don't know like how to kind of interact with me anymore. However, like I think one thing that I did notice was um, a lot of my friendships were from the startup world and they were good friendships. But most of the time what we talked about was startups. So when I wasn't doing startups and doing, I, I wasn't, I was transitioning. A lot of, especially my men friends could only think of it as the closest they could think of it in their head was like a sabbatical. And I was kind of far from that. Right. Like I was going in and out of hospitals and, you know, clinics and paperwork. And so I feel like I couldn't communicate with them a lot for a while. Uh, so it, it felt a little, you feel a bit isolated, but at the same time, it also strengthens a lot of your relationships. Um, so I would say definitely the network took a hit. Uh, I also moved countries, right? Like most of my network was in India. Then I, I sort of, you know, I started my transition actually in Colombia in South America. Uh, and and then I moved to Barcelona. And then there were bits of like my transition in Thailand. So like I had this kind of like jetting around the world to become the person I am. So I think like, yeah, I definitely disconnected from my network. But then I sort of started picking up a new one. And I think like that's why, like you said, YC was great because I feel like I could just like, like on this kind of like super powered mode bootstrap a new network again. Hmm. And what about uh, the the you mentioned you know hopping around to lots of different places. So is that why I noticed you you talk about Magic Bell as like it's it's a remote first company, right? And uh, obviously it's only the two of you now, but as you grow, I think you're going to continue that that uh, strategy. So has that been part of it too? Like has it been since you've been like a citizen of the world essentially as you go through this, and then also. Um, you did YC remotely, but so your connections are mainly remote there. Like, is that what proved to you the value of remote or did you always kind of think that that had a lot of value? 
Well, so uh, we did everything, like at least in support, we like, uh, so we sort of had this hybrid, you could work remotely if you wanted to, but then we had an office for a while in Bangalore, and then we went fully remote in 2015, long before anybody else did, or at least in the early wave. And we felt that remote worked really well. I think one distinction I like to make is there's a difference between people who work remotely and people who are nomadic. And I think like both are great lifestyles. I personally prefer to, uh, you know, work with and work remotely instead of uh, working with people who are sort of nomadic, who, uh, you know, I think the distinction is people like you and me who are in like whichever city for some reason, but then we have a very stable setup. We take our holidays, we travel, sometimes we work from there, but our primary ambition isn't to see the world. So I think like that remote work, I've been a big champion of for a while. And and that's why with Magicwell as well, uh, we plan to be a remote company. Like as we grow our team, what is like? Can you like go deeper on that? Like nomadic nomadic workers. Like what is it? You know, you said you mentioned the stable setup. Is that something that you know being on a different time zone? What is it necessarily about that that you don't that leads you to not prefer it as as much as someone who's kind of like in the same place with the same setup? I feel like I'm gonna get a lot of hate for this <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i'm gonna I mean, be able to back people, you up though but i'm gonna wait to see what you say <laughs> people have opinions you know yeah sure and like i said there's a company for everyone out there so i'm sure there are companies that are very happy with like people who are nomadic what i mean is this right where um like you are on a three-month uh south america trip but then you want to work with a tech company because tech pays great and you sort of like are hop what you're doing is technically you're working on the weekdays, but you're working from coffee shops or your hostels with spotty Wi-Fi. Uh, and then, you know, on the weekends or in the night, you're taking a bus to go somewhere else. And I think like that kind of work, if you want to do that, it's probably best to be a freelancer and sort of take projects on and then give, you know, where you, if you are a startup where uh, there is a lot of pressure to deliver, uh, it it can get a bit tricky. Like, you know, you, you come into meetings. It's also about the culture. It just kind of encourages this. Um, and and your team needs you too. Yeah, right? exactly. Like your team, like there people, there are other people whose job is dependent on what you deliver and that you do it on time and that you're available when they have a question or a need or a task. And that makes it a lot harder. Yeah, because also like sometimes people think like, it's just 40 hours a week. And I am a pretty big proponent of 40, even through the YC. And I know like this is going to sound terrible. I probably only worked on an average 50 hours a week. But do I actually work 50 Same or... No. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> you lazy, this lazy. Was, this was my confession, by the way. This was my confession. I think that's totally fine. <laughs> I think it's absurd to yeah. ask people to do more, but go ahead. Yeah. But you know, right? Like to work 40 hours a week, you actually have to have your life in order. You have to be very disciplined. You have like to put actual 40 to 50 hours is very hard. And that's very difficult if you are not in a predictable environment. So if you are traveling while you're working, it just doesn't work very well. So I think like that's what I meant by this nomadic versus remote. Yeah. Get your Twitter ready. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I think that makes tons of sense. And I think you're, you make a good point about the hours, right? If those are true quality hours, like that's a very different thing. And I think that's lost in a lot of the... Uh, hustle culture talk right like especially 
And I, it's it's funny. I was just talking to an investor yesterday. It was um, or a couple of days ago. It was Chris Arsenault from Anovia, which is a nice fund here in Montreal. But he was saying, you know, Daryl, I can't believe how much we got done this year. I got so much done. And I was like, yeah, it's because it's because you weren't on planes most of the time. And it's because like, and that doesn't count as work. <laughs> and especially VCs like to think that counts as work, right? Like sitting on a plane, sitting in an airport, like sending off an email here or there. Like it, when you're at home, it, one of the things that is a silver lining of this pandemic is that you realize like, oh, wow, I can be much more efficient with my time when I'm, when I really literally have nothing else to do. Right? Well, it's like, not just travel either. Like I also, not to like shit on VCs or anything, but like, I feel like VCs are always talking about meetings. So like I have this meeting and then we need to talk about that meeting and then we need to do the pre-meeting for the next meeting and then we'll have an all hands to discuss that meeting. And it's like, is anybody ever actually doing anything? Do you ever like write something or build a spreadsheet or like, is anybody actually doing anything? Are you guys all just talking all the time? Which I know like that's a big part of the job. I get it. Like they're taking meetings and getting pitches and stuff, but like then there's meetings about them. I don't know. It just feels like is anybody writing anything down? Or are we just talking all the time? Well, somebody's always a designated uh, <laughs> minutes. minutes taker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's why they have these AI tools calling into your Zoom meetings now, transcribing the call. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I was going to say to be fair to them, like having been on the cor- in the corporate world, that's that's is it way worse there, right? Like that's basically there's like sixty people in every meeting that you're like. And this is, and they just say the person's name at the beginning of the meeting, and then they sit there and they've done nothing, and they didn't participate in the meeting at all, and then they're gone, right? Like, it's it, it's definitely more egregious in in I think legacy institutions, which is why none of us work there. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> one of the reasons anyway. So uh, let's actually, I w- I would love to turn to then the the fundraising process. Like I know you're you're quite early on, but how, how are you thinking about the fundraising process? How, you know, have you done much beyond kind of like the the stuff that's built into YC, or or what's your strategy there? So I think I actually uh, didn't follow YC's advice pretty religiously when it comes to fundraising. I did do some conversations after I got into YC. Mostly because I think I came in as a founder that could never raise before. I tried raising for support, but I couldn't. So I think I had this, uh, you know, I just needed to get a little bit of a head start just to feel better. Um, I'm actually excited to say that I'm pretty much done with fundraising already. So it, wow. it makes it easier for me to go into the demo day now. Uh, like you said before, we have customers, we have a good product, and now I have this kind of background. So this time it was a lot easier with the sort of also the YC forcing function of the demo day. Um, I think like what, what was very interesting was to actually see like those fundraising dynamics that people talk about or you read about actually happening and, you know, being in the middle of them. So for example, I think I also like understood that how much, uh, of the early stage fundraising is about the storytelling and what this could become and using the data points you have to sub- to pack that story up. Versus, let's say, like a Series A, which of course I haven't done yet, but sounds like it's a lot more data driven. So, you know, there is still the story of where it could go. But if you don't have the data to back up everything, good luck raising, you know. Um, I think the other thing pretty interesting for me was to also just like see how subjective, you know, the perception of your stories. The same day that I would get offers to invest, I would get rejections from equally good investors. 
<laughs> so uh, if it's in terms of the process, I would say like the standard YC process, which at least I would follow now if I were to do YC again, is to sort of just batch up all your meetings before the demo day. So you have a lot of traction to show. Uh, there is sort of this forcing function of the demo day. And uh, try to get meetings where the decision maker or at least somebody who can pitch to the partnership is already there. So you do not do one meeting just to say hello and another one. I think like YC has actually written a lot about it. Uh, apart from Paul Graham, I think there's this article which I probably linked to in my blog post called Leverage and Process. I think like between that and the Paul Graham's fundraising uh, article, that's pretty much like the Bible of early stage fundraising. YC has already standardized the whole idea of safe so you don't have to worry about paperwork, anything like that. So it's mostly about just keeping your emotions in check, believing in the process. And, uh, and as much as like they tell you, right? Like when you start raising money, once the money starts coming in and you see your batchmates raising money, you're always gonna feel you're not raising enough at high enough valuations. So I think I had to definitely tune that noise out a bit. It's not easy. Same with the, I have to say, like same with the TechCrunch coverages, right? Like, so everybody says, hey, press is not that important in the long run. It, but then when you do see your batchmates getting covered and you are not getting covered, you kind of try like, oh, what's going on with this? So I think like managing emotions is the big one. Yeah. Uh, we but, can give you some inside <laughs> insight <laughs> on what, what, what that looks like. Basically, the, it's a volume problem, honestly, a lot of the times now because there's so many YC companies in every yeah, batch. Yeah, it's right? like 300 companies. Like yeah. that's, I don't know how many stories we publish in a day or week. Yeah. but and, and like you said with VCs too, it's often quite um, uh, subjective, right? Like it's, a, it's essentially who are the writers we have? What are their spe- specific expertise, uh, skills, like areas of interest, right? And then also what is their schedule like during that particular time when they receive the pitch, right? Like those are the things that go into it. And it's, it's, it's difficult if, on the other side for sure, but it's, it's something where I think the best strategy to counter that is to not let it dissuade you from continuing to come back uh every time right and like because because all those factors change every time and then one of the times it's going to be a hit it will happen don't worry about it and and you know i think like one of the things that uh, i keep thinking about is how it's kind of like climbing the everest right so you think getting to the base camp is so hard and you know in some ways you can say like getting into a good accelerator is like getting to the base camp but then you realize there's a bunch of people already there and almost to the very peak of the everest in the peak season right like there's a line of people wanting to just go there, take a selfie and come back down. So I think <laughs> any like ideas that you are special at any stage and hence you will just get that coverage, get that money. You, you, you figure that out that that's not happening. That's not the case. Right. But then once you do, and once you accept that, I think it, 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 it unblocks you kind of, right? Then you're, you're able to be much more successful because you're focused on yourself and you're, you've got blinders on and you're not looking around at everybody else, right? So I know, you know, I was trying to tee you up for it, but I think it will have been published on TechCrunch at, at some, when this podcast comes up, but you've, you've raised your, your, series, your seed, right? You've closed your seed funding. Um, so what did that feel like for you? And, and you know, how did you pick those investors? What were your kind of main criteria for who came in on that? And anything around the seed would be. Yeah, sure. Actually, so I basically closed the majority of it this morning. So it's amazing timing to come here. And um, 
I raised it from uh, Sophia Benz. She is partner at Sherry and they wrote the biggest check. There's some angels like Claire who introduced us and uh, Max Stoiber who is uh, the creator of React Boilerplate. Uh, some of my friends who are entrepreneurs and who run successful companies have invested. Um, Christian Reber, the CEO of Pitch and Wonderlist, uh, he's an investor. So it's it's been interesting because a few of our customers offered to invest. So Pitch, of course, like first became a customer and then, you know, I got introduced to the CEO and uh, he agreed to invest. So they were like that. There were a few like that. Sophia was the very first one who came in uh, with a smaller check first, right around the time YC started and then, you know, the full on seed round when we were ready to raise. So I'm especially thankful to her for trusting in me. Uh, I think like one of the exciting things that has happened, and I know like statistically uh, speaking, it's only like 2.7% of the funding that goes to women. Uh, but on the flip side of it, I think like the female angel investors are like actually a pretty strong force right now. And once you get on one person's radar, they'll introduce you to each other and they'll try to introduce you to the other female operators. So Mary out here who's, sold her startup to Twitter and works there. She's an investor because Sophia introduced me to her. So that's actually been really great to watch and experience. So I would say like from Sophia, there was this kind of like, and YC, there was this sort of snowball effect. YC is definitely a force multiplier, undoubtedly. But um, I think I, I'm glad that pretty early on, I understood the difference between like good investors and sort of the ones who are, uh, I think like for each person, there's probably a right set of investors who vibe with you. And so I would say I, I'm kind of glad I ran into some of them early on and then they can introduce me to more people like themselves. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's an interesting point about the kind of network effects, especially among um, women investors. I think, you know, I just we just had in Canada here a. Uh, uh, big announcement of a group of angels that were all early Shopify employees. Um yeah, yeah. So, you know, I know them all pretty well, but uh, uh, Arthi Charma is the, the main lead, I think, on that. And then Atlee Clark as well and, and a bunch of other um, really fantastic women and, and senior leaders that, that have obviously vested a lot uh, from their early Shopify uh, equity. But um, it's it's super exciting to see that thing happen. And I think it's, it, it's borne out in practice. You really do see I don't know what it is, but it's like much stronger network effects or like just more of a willingness to make introductions and to make things happen, even if it's not the specific right fit for you, right? Which is another thing that's super valuable, especially at the early stage. So now you've got that in hand. What's the plan next uh, uh, for Magic Bill? So like I said, it's just been our co-founder and I, we uh, would love to bring some people on board now, apart from obviously a few developers that I think we are a little bit better at hiring. We want to work with, uh, you know, uh, product people because uh, especially people who have sort of built dev tools, we're sort of at this interesting intersection of being a dev tool, but with a pretty end user facing uh, work. So we are actually like one of those products that people use directly. So if you worked in that, we would love to, you know, hire people like that, um, a designer. Keep the team small up until product market fit, so stay lean, uh, but probably hire, bring on maybe four to five people more so that I can actually do, like we talked at the beginning, the sales work and learn to make people realize they need this. 
Yeah. So is that what you want your focus to be? Like, what do you want? What do you envision yourself being, you know, as the leader of the company? And what's kind of like your day to day? Or what do you think is your ideal use of your day to day time? I think like at this stage, it's definitely to sort of uh, get the product market fit, which is both, of course, like a product people love that solves their problems, but then also like figuring out how to reach those people and how to scale that up. So I think like that's the biggest difference between a bootstrapped, I mean, a lot of bootstrap entrepreneurs, of course, are pretty aggressive with the sales target. I wasn't. So I think for me, yeah, that's the transition is to uh, be growth focused. Uh, I can only do that job if I have a good product team uh, backing me up. So the very first job, obviously, is to set up that product org and work with them. But then definitely yeah, start moving towards more of the sales onboarding, uh, that function. I think like build different, I'm pretty excited about, I'm sure every CEO says that, but I'm pretty excited about bringing smart, bringing smart people in. And uh, I think one of the good things about raising a lot of money from angels is you also get to see how they operate, how they make decisions, how they sort of support you through your own like journey of decisions and all that. So I would love to, you know, become that leader and uh, yeah. build an org like that. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of I, I talked to uh, Aaron Bally, CEO of Carbon Health recently, and he was saying, he was like, you know what I really love now at this point in the company is I can come into our all hands meetings on Friday and people will announce something and I'll be like, wow, that's cool. I didn't know that was that. <laughs> but, but it's like, it's a really good thing. It's like I hired the smart person, they went and did the job, and I'm pleasantly surprised at the things that they're doing. Is that is that too much? of a of a like letting go of control for you or do you think that's kind of like the ideal state to I'd say that's the ideal right because otherwise you're always limited by what you can imagine and I think one of the reasons you want to get smart people is not just to do your bidding but to also uh, to imagine to show you sort of like what you are missing and to build a culture like that so if you want to build a pretty big like my goal definitely is to build uh, a pretty like long-term great business not uh let's see what happens of course but you know if you if if you want to do that uh you need to have these kind of people who who you want to have the caliber of people who basically would be doing their own startups but the only reason they're teaming up is because they think somehow working together they can do more and you cannot i mean that's like having a bunch of like really cool cats you can't tell mm-hmm. them what to do. You have to, uh, <laughs> you don't want to also, right? Like, why would you uh, have cool cats if you don't want them to be cool cats? So, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to get for this too. No, it's the cool greatest cats. analogy I've ever heard. <laughs> do you think that we're cool cats, Daryl? <laughs> What's that? Do you think we're cool cats or... Ooh, I don't know Not about that. Yet. I mean, I think, I think, I think TechCrunch is, that's a pretty apt description of TechCrunch as well. Uh, Hannah, in your this is an audio podcast, so the listeners haven't seen this, but Hannah's cat just walked by. Literally walked by right at the right time. Just Perfect another timing. Another cool cat. Yeah, yeah. No, I do think that is an accurate description of TechCrunch because everyone's quite independent, but also quite capable and intelligent, right? And we just kind of let them do what they want, and then the magic. I mean, happens. I just found out that this podcast is launching alongside early. <laughs> I, so I do want to talk a bit about the product too, because you know when I saw it, I was like, it reminded me of um, we had obviously customer facing notification systems uh, when I worked at Shopify, and it was a topic of much debate and discussion and effort and engineering effort. Um, you know, it's it's 
it's a very important surface area, if, especially if you're a SaaS business, and it's something that you can spend a lot of time on to make even minor changes, uh, uh, you know, or especially to build yourself from scratch. So, you know, I, based on just that experience, it seems like there was an obvious need for this. But you saw that too coming up and and seeing kind of like what your fellow startups were dealing with. Yeah, and. Um... I think like that's a pretty good way to describe the problem. Uh, I would just add that there are a lot of notification tools in the market, but most of them focus on this kind of marketing engagement. So if you are a marketing team or a customer success team, you can use something like intercom and then send targeted messages. Uh, and what Magic Bell is focusing on is if you're a product team and you send notifications to keep the product workflow moving. So let's say, uh, you know, for example, pitch, if a slide is assigned to you or, uh, you know, one of our other customers is an insurance marketplace, like a lead uh, comes in and you want to grab that quickly. Those kind of things that traditionally people have sent an email just because email was easy. That's the sort of piece we are bringing in app. And we're saying like people are already in your app or let's say they come back to your app. They want to see what's new, what needs their attention, what should they work on? That piece hasn't gotten any love until like Magic Bell came on the scene. And that's the one I'm really passionate about. The other way to look at this problem is this. Let's say you look at your phone and then you see these notifications and you pretty much have to manage them mentally, right? And they sometimes actually make you more anxious. So you say you make a mental note on a Saturday night that Monday morning I need to get back to this. I would like to build eventually like it would be great if we can get to a place where you can truly rely on your notifications in a way you can say, I will not miss anything important and I will not see anything that I don't need to see. Oh, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, right. Like, so I mean, that's kind of a North Star. Yeah. Yeah, because you see that on consumer devices, right? And you see companies like Apple trying to, to accomplish that with their notification systems, whether they're doing a good job or not is another question. But like it's 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 a big miss for those not to just be an inbuilt task management system as well. Right. Um, and I think, you know, with with the ability to dial it to be as heavy or as light as you would like it to be, depending on your preferred engagement model, right? But um, that makes a ton of sense because, you know, I'm just thinking about the internal tools we use and we use Slack and we use this thing called Convo. And one of the, t the ways that I use Convo, which is essentially like our asynchronous sort of like bulletin board, is I look at the notifications that happened overnight and then like sort of triage them that way so that I don't have to go through the whole thing. But it's it's very basic now. It's essentially like here are the things and then like once I navigate away, they're sort of marked as red and gone forever. And, you know, there, there's nothing really I can do. It, it Like you said, it's something that I mainly have to man manage mentally as opposed to like through the tool. Yeah, I think it's just because... The APIs available today, uh, and you can, of course, build a notification system yourself, are too low level. What we need is like slightly higher level APIs where you can say this notification should probably expire when this thing is done. So some of the notifications go away. You should be able to, as an end user, pick preferences, move some of your notifications to a digest. Like you said, you should be able to dial up or down the volume or choose as an end user. For example, a good, you know, Slack has do not disturb, but which other app have you seen even having do not disturb? And Slack has been doing that for five years and it's still not mainstream. And uh, so I think like it's pretty exciting to build that and to sort of have this 
eventual like impact in people's lives and uh, sort of also move the state of the art i mean i'm happy to see more competition in this industry i mean more players and it's a pretty pretty big problem to solve doesn't it seem i i'm sure people have suggested like well you know the thing the classic like is it a feature or is it a, a standalone business thing right like do you foresee that being a problem or you think like no like the things that we're going to do is not something you could tackle sort of in-house or it doesn't make sense to restrict it to one enterprise or would you conversely be happy to go that way if somebody an enterprise tool came to you and was like you know we just like to make this a key differentiator for our platform and so here's a big check do you want that <laughs> like how do you think about it in, in terms of the future i think you actually summed it up pretty well so it would be great to get to a place where notifications are a differentiator uh and i think we will get to that like for example slack is like that right like they probably do a very good job of their notifications and that's why people are able to live with slack the whole feature versus you know this is this a feature how can this be a billion dollar company or something like that you know especially when you get asked that a lot in fundraising i thought a lot about that and what i realized is that when people are thinking about it they're thinking about the state of the art that exists today so if you look at the notification systems today and they have the simple drop down and just you know like you said everything is marked as red and it goes away if you try thinking of replacing that that looks like a feature but if you think about a well functioning notification inbox within an app that's actually like each app having an email client that's not so much of a feature as much as like a mini product within a product so i think people always end up confusing not just for us but for search let's say they compare the state of the art with and they think of replacing the state of the art and so it just looks like okay yeah sure it makes sense but but when when good companies like take on that problem they just like take it to another level because most people have never had time to solve those problems yeah great that makes a ton of sense um all right han i think we're close to time here or maybe even a bit over but it was fantastic talking to you i really really appreciate you taking the time and and glad we could get this done yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Go be a cool cat. <laughs> We're all cool, cool cats, cats here. <laughs> I don't know about you, Jordan, but I now know a lot more about notifications and how developers use them for triaging their systems. It was honestly something I was not really that cognizant of before, but uh, I think like you teased at the beginning, you know, this is a huge money-making opportunity for a company and Hannah seems set up to to really take advantage of it. Yeah, and I also think that Hannah is the kind of person, just from our conversation with her, that will really um, make solid business decisions because you can you can see in a situation like this where the, the scale opportunity is so big, how it would be easy to kind of like get ahead of yourself or make missteps, but I feel like she's really thinking through everything very clearly. And it was just also a really fun person to talk to. Like, I just, I actually had so much fun. So uh, great conversation with Hannah. I'm excited to see where Magic Bell goes. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch news editor, Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch managing editor, Jordan Crook. Both of us are very cool cats. We are produced and mixed by Ishad Kulkarni, and TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Again, cool cats. Our guest this week was Hannah Mohan co-founder and ceo of magic bell she is a cool cat for sure and you can find us on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and on twitter at twitter.com slash found you can also email us at found at techcrunch.com thanks for listening and we'll be back next week meow <laughs> <laughs>